want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Exodus. We'll be in chapter 32 this morning, Exodus 32. And just as a reminder, there are 40 chapters in Exodus. So we're getting, we're getting there. We're getting closer uh, to the end. We've got a, a very important passage we're looking at this morning. We're going to be looking at verses 1 to 14. And as we look at this passage, I, I want to remind us that they, we, we can go to certain passages in the Bible, and you, you probably know this, certain passages that are suitable, really suitable for bringing out and showing us certain truths, what we call doctrines. Uh, if you want to understand God's mercy, there are a few places that you can go, but one of those would be Ephesians chapter 2. Just a clear statement, verse 4, but God in His mercy. Uh, if you want to understand the holiness of God, uh, again, number of places, but one place you can turn is Leviticus chapter 10. talks about Nadab and Abihu and what happened with them. Uh, just, just a clear statement of the holiness of, of God. Well, this morning we're looking at one of those passages, and, and it's this. If, if you want to know and understand certain aspects of sinfulness or of sin, the doctrine of sin, this is one of those go-to passages. In fact, if you want to understand your own sin, uh, you want to understand the temptation that uh, can lead to it, the effect of it, and how God responds to our sin, then this passage is very instructive. This is that passage that is really well known. Most people here uh, probably do know it. The passage that describes the Israelites making the golden calf, which they then use to assist them in their worship. But you know, it's really the, it's really the backdrop to this story that makes it such a horrific sin. Remember, because we've been going through the book of Exodus, remember where Moses was at this point. He was up on the mountain, uh, Mount Sinai, where he had been for some time. He was receiving instructions from the Lord. If you recall first, uh, this is back uh, chapter 19 and 20, uh, Moses received the Ten Commandments, God's moral law. And then he communicated the, the commandments to the people. And so it's, it's important that we remember this. At this point, the people have received the, the commandments. They've received God's moral law. They don't have it in written form, but they have, have just heard it. Uh, and then you remember chapter 24. Uh, you've got this is associated with a mountain as well. Uh, you've got the renewal of God's covenant with his people. And remember, the people had had agreed, they said, with all that the Lord had spoken, they said, we will do. Uh, they would be an obedient people, they said. And then Moses sent Aaron to, to go and to be with the people down at the, the base of the mountain uh, and to lead them because he was going to be gone for an indeterminate amount of time, if you remember. And then he, Moses, went back up onto the mountain, into the cloud and onto the mountain. And it was that point at which uh, the Lord began to, to, to give him, show him, actually, it says, to show him his holy tabernacle. 
and the plans for his tabernacle that the people were to build. Uh, And so that's what he has been about. That's what God has been about. Uh, Think about what the tabernacle represents. It's God dwelling with his people, uh, something that's unimaginable. Uh, the, the God of the universe coming and saying, I want to dwell, to live amongst this people. I want you to know me and me to know you. And so that's the backdrop. And then while this is going on, you've got the people down below in what we're reading about now in this rebellion against the Lord. You know, I... I wonder if it would change things for us uh, in terms of our our sin when we uh, engage ourselves in in some sin that we we know what we're doing. I wonder if it would change things if we had in our mind and our heart that kind of a backdrop on a regular basis. We knew what the Lord has done for us. We knew what the Lord is doing for us. I, I wonder if it wouldn't change how we viewed our sin. Well, that's one of the things that we want to look for in ourselves as we go through this passage. So I'm going to read, uh, read the passage again, chapter 32 of Exodus. I'll begin with v- verse 1, and we'll go through verse 14 and get uh, the, the basis for this account of the golden calf. This is God's Word. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who, will go, who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Verse 7, And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people. And behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation out of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought 
out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand, why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Please join me in prayer. Father, we recognize this morning that we are a sinful people. Uh, we have to see it in our own hearts. We have to see it in our own lives that we, we have, and we continue at times to rebel against you. And so we, we recognize that we have a need to understand this, to understand sin, and to understand what it really means, what it really represents, and, and your uh, perspective on sin, what it does to our relationship with you. And so I pray this morning, Lord, help us to have a a heart that is ready to receive and ready to understand. Give us a a mind that is able to think through these things. Uh, Give us clarity, I pray, as we go through this passage, and give us, I pray, your truth that we might see and understand and, and apply it to our lives and therefore live differently. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You know, I think, as I'm looking around, there are going to be some here who are going to be too young to remember this, but many of us will be able to remember what happened on January 26th, 1986. You can think about yourself, uh, where you might have been then if you were here upon this earth. Uh, it was shortly after the Space, sh- space Shuttle Challenger launched from Cape Canaveral with a crew of seven people on board. Now, probably there, there are many of us here who can remember watching on, on the TV screen, and uh, I remember exactly where I was when I saw it, uh, and seeing the image of, of the shuttle uh, going higher and higher, and it was about a minute into it when all of a sudden the, the, the image of the shuttle turned into this bright plume of white smoke, and if you were like me, then you were kind of asking the question, is that what's supposed to happen? And there was silence for a minute, and then the, the commentators began to uh, talk about it. Uh, it was an explosion that occurred, and it, wasn't, uh, it, it, it resulted in the destruction, complete destruction of the shuttle and the crew, the entire crew that was on board. Uh, it wasn't too long after that, though, that it came out uh, what had caused this accident. They, they figured uh, out the, the chain of reaction that had happened. And the explosion itself, I don't know if you remember this, but it was caused by two small O-rings. They were very small, about a third of an inch uh, in diameter. One was a primary O-ring and the other was a, a secondary, and, and both failed. And it was determined that the reason that they failed was the outside air temperature. 
the outside air temperature, this is Florida, Cape Canaveral, but it had been overnight, something like 19 degrees. And at the time of launch there in the morning, it was just right about freezing, maybe just above freezing. And you know how rubber, uh, when it gets really cold, it can become a little bit brittle. Well, that's what had happened. And so these O-rings that are designed to form a seal, they didn't form the seal that they're supposed to form, and they allowed pressurized gas to leak out, uh, and it uh, ignited and burned through an external fuel tank, and it caused the explosion. Well, one other factor that came out in this later was that the, the crew that was there in the shuttle, they didn't have any means of escape. And this was really by design. They were in this module called the Orbiter module, and it was, it was designed without uh, an, an escape system. Early on, they had had an escape system, but they determined it was too large, and they determined that uh, it probably wasn't needed anyway. Uh, and so even though it's fairly certain now that uh, several of the crew survived the initial breakup of the, of the shuttle, uh, and so they, they continued on, yet they had no ejection mechanism, no escape mechanism, no possibility of survival, even if they had survived at the point when uh, this uh, capsule went and hit, hit the water at great speed. Uh, in the Atlantic. So, uh, no possibility of survival. Uh, You've got what seemed to be a very small thing, these two O-rings, that when subjected to a difficulty, a a challenge, which was the the, the cold air in the morning, colder temperatures than they had ever had on any of the launches before, this led to complete destruction of the shuttle, of the crew, uh, with no, op- no possibility of escape. So you might ask, well, what did that have to do with sin? Uh, well, think for a moment about these O-rings that failed. You know, sin is a failure. Sin is a failure to adhere to God's law. It's very simple. And we have a major problem when it comes to sin a major problem, and that is that we, we think about it as being something that's it's small. It, it, it's not that bad. It's not that critical. Now, we know it, it can be a problem. It can, it can uh, sometimes lead to very negative consequences, but overall, it's just not that bad. You know, these O-rings and the shuttle, they were actually known to be a problem before the launch, if you read what happened, there were two engineers who knew that they had been a problem. They knew they hadn't been tested at these low temperatures, and they recommended that the, the launch be postponed until another time with, uh, with higher temperatures. But, you know, after a couple of meetings, the leadership convinced themselves, basically, that the danger wasn't that great. And so having justified their decision, they said, let's, let's go. Let's, let's go with it. Uh, and then when it was too late, when they already found out that this seemingly small failure had caused a catastrophic effect, complete destruction and death, then they recognized the magnitude of the problem. You know, that's the way it is with sin. 
Uh, in our minds, uh, we are capable of doing this. We're capable of doing whatever's needed in order to convince ourselves that, you know, it's not that bad. This right here, it's, it, it's, it's not that critical. And so we go ahead. And undoubtedly, that's what Israel did in our, our passage this morning. Now, you may read through that passage. You may say, well, that's a terrible sin. That's, this is egregious. But they had ways of justifying it. And so when Moses doesn't return, they begin to have doubts, uh, not only about Moses, but certainly about the Lord himself. Then you can be sure they began, as they had done in the past and they would do in the future, they began to murmur and complain about their situation and say, well, who is going to lead us now? Rather than waiting and trusting and depending upon the Lord. And so what did they do? They went this other direction. They gathered themselves together, uh, it says, and uh, they went to Aaron, and they, they, they said, well, Aaron, we've we got to be able to worship, uh, and so help us out. Uh, let, let's do what we know. Let's do what we feel is right within our hearts, what we want to do. And so they said to Aaron, up, make us gods who shall go before us. And all the while, they were convincing themselves, yeah, this is not all that bad. And therefore, they were never seeing sin as sin, never recognizing that sin leads to destruction and to death. And you know, we're, we are susceptible to that same deception, uh, to returning to sin again and again and again, and continuing in it while never stopping to recognize what sin really is and what it leads to. You know, like the, the O-rings that we were talking about, we can convince ourselves that yeah, it's just a, a, a small matter. It's a little failure so that we minimize sin, we minimize the effects, and we fail to see what it really is. Remember what we read earlier, Paul said, the wages of sin is death. Remember, James said the same thing. So, this passage that we're looking at this morning is given to help us to see this about sin. It helps us to see that sin ultimately leads to destruction. And that's really central to this this passage. We're actually given encouragement here all the way through to, to flee from sin. Because sin does lead to destruction. And yet at the same time, in this passage, we're given good news as well. And that's what I'd like for us to see in this passage this morning, uh, that there is good news here, that the Lord knows our, he lo- knows our need. Think about the, the, the shuttle challenger, the crew that was left without a route of escape. If those O-rings failed, as they did, then... It would lead to complete destruction. There was no means of escape. Well, for us, sin leads to death. And so we need to know that. We need to understand what that means for us. But at the same time, we need to recognize the Lord has provided us with a way out. He's provided us with a means of escape. 
And that's what we're going to see as we go through this passage. And that means of escape is this covenant relationship that we've been talking about uh, that God has made with His people. Covenant relationship, means of escape. And so I'd like for us to see this as we go through uh, this passage on the golden calf. To see that because sin leads to destruction, we must not minimize it. Instead, three things. First of all, flee because of the nature of sin. Secondly, flee because of the seriousness of sin. And then finally, make sure that we're in this covenant because therein God gives grace. So first of all, flee because of the nature of sin. You know, here's, uh, here's what the New Testament tells us about why we're given this account of Israel's sin. This is out of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. It's, it's talking about this specific passage as well as others. It says, now, Paul says, now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Think about it. That's something that we should uh, receive and, and say, well, that's what I want, not to desire evil. And so, if that's the case, then we need to understand this account and understand something from it about the nature of sin and, and why they engaged in sin, why we engage in sin, and then apply it to ourselves and, and receive a spiritual benefit from it. So the first thing I'd like for us to see is what they actually did. You know, sin, as I mentioned earlier, it's simply a failure to obey God's commandments. And again here, just as a reminder, this people knew those commandments. They did know them in their hearts, even though their hearts were corrupt. Uh, but they also knew them because God had given them very directly to them. And so, uh, right off the bat, what they do is they disobey two of those commandments. In fact, the first two. Look at what uh, the Lord says about it in verse 8 in our passage. Uh, this is the Lord talking to Moses. He says, they, this people, have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. You know, he's saying they, they, they so quickly broke my commandments. And then he gets more specific and he says, they have made for themselves a golden calf and worshipped it, and sacrificed to it, and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of, of Egypt. So first of all, they worshipped other gods. Well, that's the first commandment there. They worshipped other gods. And then at the same time, they, they seem to use this calf. If you pay attention to what, what Aaron said to them when he said, Tomorrow there shall be a feast to the Lord, and they were going to use the, the golden calf in this way, uh, they seemed to use it to, to help them to worship the true God. Uh, so in that doing that, they broke the second commandment. Uh, they put an image before themselves of God. And so they broke these commandments, and yet it doesn't seem to have bothered them at all. Let me ask you kind of a Direct question, do you know God's commandments? Could you go through and, and, and 
recite them and, and say, well, these are the Ten Commandments, the first, second, third, and, and all the way through. Can you list them out? Well, if not, then you need to be able to. Uh, you know, we spent a couple of months going through the commandments and digging in deeper and looking at what they, what they really meant. But this is what God's people, this is what we are to be doing uh, we need to know God's commandments. We need to be concerned about what they mean and uh, where we are with respect to them. Are we walking in obedience to them? We need to have a heart for obedience. Uh, it's not legalism to focus upon God's commandments, to think about them often, uh, to apply them to our own lives. If it's done out of a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not legalism. It's loving Jesus. What did Jesus say? If you love me, you will obey my commandments. How can we do that unless we know what his commandments are? So just an encouragement to all of us uh, to, to spend time to, to know his commandments. This is his moral law. You know, th- this people, they didn't have knowledge of the Lord Jesus, uh, direct knowledge, but they, they were supposed to know the Lord and they had heard His commandments, yet they broke His commandments very directly. Uh, something else that we look for and see in this passage. Why do we sin just generally? Why do we sin? Well, just being very general about it, it's because we don't trust God. Uh, You can see this with this people in the very first few words of the chapter. It says, When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, they gathered themselves to Aaron. And then they're going to say, a little bit after this, they're going to say, we don't know what has become of him, speaking of of Moses. Notice here they they face a challenge. They face a difficulty uh, that... They have to deal with something that they didn't ask for, something that perhaps they don't want, but there's a difficulty there, and they must decide what to do. Uh, Remember, it was a, think back to the the shuttle and the O-rings. There was a difficulty that led to that failure that occurred. It was the the outside air temperature. Uh, The air temperature was lower than it ever had been before. The rings failed because... Uh, they, hadn't, they weren't able to adapt to that temperature. It's, it's the same way with sin. You know, usually this difficulty that comes into our lives is something that is unwanted, uh, something that, that we didn't ask for, we don't care for. It, it's, it's a challenge, but we're faced with a choice in how we respond. Now here, uh, Moses didn't return in the time that they expected. They began to doubt. They began to wonder, well, what's going to happen to us. And so they had a choice. They could either trust in the Lord and be patient, or they could take matters into their own hands out of an impatient and seek their own solution. And then, of course, convince themselves that that solution was not all that bad. Uh, That's the choice that we have in sin. Uh, And so this question has to be asked of our own hearts. How do I react when I'm faced with a challenge, a difficulty, something that comes into my life that I didn't plan on, I didn't ask for? Do I respond with anger, with impatience, with bitterness, 
and on and on, and then seek out my own solution, look for my own idol, or do I trust in, in the Lord, resting in Him? You know, we see what the Israelites do. They came up with their own solution. Uh, and look how quickly they seem to do that. And in fact, you, you see that brought out in what the Lord said. He said, they have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. And so in their turning aside so quickly, this really just demonstrates uh, that they followed through outwardly on what was really going on with inside, inwardly. And this is important because the real problem here is not simply in what they did. You know, that's what we always think about sin as being. It, it's, it's how we respond outwardly to something. But that wasn't the real problem. Because even before they sinned by creating this golden calf, their hearts already were not dedicated to the Lord. Uh, the absence of, of Moses, when he didn't show up, what did it do? It just brought out the opportunity for the sin that was already lurking within them to become shown on the outside. You know, often we do the exact same thing. We tend to think about our sin as something that's, that's outside of ourselves. It involves our outward actions. If I were to ask you uh, this past week, did you sin? Where did you sin? I have no doubt that most would turn to... Well, I did this. I know that that wasn't right. Uh, or, or over here, I, you know, I, I got angry about this. I, I know, and, and it's true. Uh, those, that, that's the fruit of the sin, but, but the heart of it, the root of it, is on the inside. You know, sin is not so much what we do as who we are. Sin is not so much what we do as who we are. We are. Jesus pointed this out when he said, he said this in a number of places throughout the Gospels, for no good tree bears bad fruit, and no bad tree bears good fruit. He's saying it's, it's, it's the heart that's, that matters. It's what's inside the heart. And the only way to get to the root of the problem is to deal with what's inside the heart. Uh, we need to deal with the idols that are there. And then our actions will follow. You know, the Apostle Paul says, therefore, uh, I'm sorry, this is uh, the, the Apostle John. He, he says, um, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Flee from idols. And, and 1 Corinthians 10, I was reading from earlier, Paul says, therefore, beloved, flee from idol, idolatry. You know, they're not speaking about outward actions there. They're speaking about the heart, uh, that we need to recognize the idols that we have in our hearts. And we see that often by the way we respond to things. If we respond with anger, we respond with impatience. If we respond with bitterness, uh, then it's just a statement of what is inside. And that's what we need to deal with. And so one thing that we need to do is recognize it and expel it. But the other thing that we need to do is to fill it with Christ. Fill it with affections for the Lord. Use the means of grace that the Lord has provided us. His Word, God's people coming together uh, and sharing with one another. Fill it with Him 
so that that sin is driven out. So first, we must flee from idolatry uh, because of what sin is. It's, it's the nature of sin. Secondly, flee because of the, the seriousness of sin. Think about sin when it comes into our lives. What's our first thought often? It's punishment. <laughs> punishment. Uh, you, you bring it to, to a child, you can see it very visibly. It's, you know, there are consequences for sin. We all know that. We've experienced it. We expect it. And so we know that there are consequences there. And here in this passage, what we see the Lord threaten uh, of the people speaks to that. You know, in their sin, this, this people have cast off God. Uh, they, they themselves uh, deserve to be cast off, therefore. And that's really what the Lord says. That's what He says in His, his language. Uh, there, uh, near the beginning, it says, The Lord said to Moses, this is verse 7, Go down for, and notice the words He uses, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted them themselves. Your people. And then further down, verse 9, the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. You know, sin separates. And the Lord here, He doesn't call the people His people anymore. All the way through, that's what we've seen. My people. But here... Uh, he, he, he says, because of their great sin, in effect, they are no longer my people, but they're your people, Moses. You're the one who has brought them out. Now this term that he uses, stiff-necked, it, it, it means what it sounds like. It means obstinate. It's used to describe a stubborn mule that won't yield to its master's uh, urging to move it in a particular direction. And that's what people can often be like. Maybe you've experienced that with someone in, in your life that uh, you recognize they're continuing down this path and you, you try to, to help and show them and others do and God's Word is there, but it doesn't help. They, they continue in that path. There, there's not a change that takes place. I'll just say that's a terrible place in which to be. A place in which the heart is hardened and it's no longer yielding to the Lord's instruction. It's a person who doesn't admit wrong and, and, and they're usually not open to counsel. Now there may be, in some cases, an outward listening and uh, some words that go along with it, but it's a, a case in which we don't see the real change manifest itself. You know, 2 Timothy 3.16 all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training up in righteousness. And the Word comes to us for this, for correction, sometimes for reproof. But when that Word yields no results and we continue forward, that is a, a fearful place in which to be. And the reason for that is because of what sin deserves and of what sin will, if, if it continues on in an unrepentant way, what it will achieve. And that is death. And I'm not just talking about earthly death. That is 
ultimate death. Um, we find it here in the, in the Lord's threatening to Israel. Uh, notice he says in verse 10, Now therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation out of you, Moses. This is what sin deserves. Utter destruction. This is what was hanging over the children of of Israel. This is what's hanging over any stiff-necked person that continues in that way. And and, and I'll tell you, I don't want to minimize this. Uh, We're going to talk in a a moment about uh, the Lord's grace, about the the escape, the way of escape, about His forgiveness, and about the mediator. Uh, But we need to take a moment and recognize what is being said here. This is the same uh, that's given all the way throughout the Bible. And it's just saying that there is no mediator for the one who remains stiff-necked. For the one who is unyielding to the Lord's commands. Uh, you know, Hebrews chapter 10 says, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Uh, this is out of Romans uh, chapter 2, verse 5. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, notice, stiff-necked, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. It's not a state that you want to be in or especially that you want to remain in. And so the encouragement here is to to flee, to turn, to confess, uh, and to find the forgiveness that can only be found in Christ. And so the one thing that we've got to take away here that we see clearly is the seriousness of sin. The wages of sin is death. It's serious. But this isn't the only thing that the Lord is showing us here. And we're not only to learn about the nature of sin and about the seriousness of sin, but right here in the middle of this ugly picture, and it's it's an ugly picture of unfaithfulness and idolatry of the people. And we're given this gleam of, of light and we're, we're brought face to face with what you might call an escape hatch, uh, that which the, the crew on the shuttle didn't have. You know, the threat of the Lord is very real, but His grace is very real as well. And so that's why you need to make sure that you're in his covenant, because therein is where we find grace. And so we've got this, it's really a strange account here where Moses appears to change God's mind. You know, God has made his intentions clear when it comes to, to the people back in, in verse 10. Yet Moses prays to God an impassioned plea that begins in verse 11. It goes all the way down through verse 13, and then we get this statement about the Lord that that appears that it was effective and it changed God's mind. Verse 14, and the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing upon his people. Well, that's exactly what Moses had, had asked for. Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. That's what he had, he had prayed And so, in effect, God canceled His destruction 
plans, that which was going to fall on the entirety of the, of the nation, the people of Israel. He canceled his plan. So what's going on here? Well, the answer is that it was never God's intention to bring destruction upon the Israelites here, only to save them, only to show forth that escape hatch from destruction, that escape hatch which was already in place. Uh, there were a couple of us in uh, the inquirer's class this morning that were talking about this, about that, that covenant of the Lord that uh, he began early on with Abraham, and, and then it goes to Moses, and we see David, and then uh, today we know about the, the new covenant that we are able to be in, but it's all one covenant, this covenant uh, uh, of grace, which was already in place. At least at this point, the framework was, was there, uh, and it's a, a covenant that would last forever. And so what the, what the Lord wants to do is to shine the light here on this covenant and on the one who makes it possible, the mediator, by interacting with Moses in this way. Moses, who was standing in as the mediator in his role of saving this people, of interceding for, the, for this people. Now, I'll just mention here, there are some who in this passage and other passages like this that really hold that God changes his mind, that he listens, he was headed one direction, and then he listens to, to Moses and he says, you know what, that wasn't really the right thing to do. So he changes his mind and heads a different direction, and so Moses is successful. Uh, these, these people, if you want a name for it, you may know this, uh, they're called open theists. Uh, and their teaching not only contradicts Scripture, but as you can tell, it would put God really as being subservient to man, or at least uh, on the same, same level plane as man. And in that case, we'd all be in trouble. But no, what God wanted uh, to show here, he, he, he wanted Moses to show up. And He wanted Moses to act as the mediator, uh, to identify with His people as their mediator, to intercede for them. And so the truth that God wanted to convey here uh, to, to you and to me and, and, and to the Israelites was that we all need a mediator. Because of what sin is and because of what sin does, we need a mediator. We need one who is able to satisfy the wrath of God that we heard about earlier. Because verse 10 is true. That sin really is deadly. And so just as the challenger burned up when those, those O-rings failed to perform their function, so too the failure that comes about as a result of our sin is that serious. It must result in God's wrath, what we see here, burning against us, consuming us, except for. And that's what we have here except for this wonderful exception that comes in. And that's what Moses' entire prayer is about. It's this exception for those who are truly in a covenant relationship with the Lord. Uh, let me show you. Uh, now, you know, God had said to Moses already that he was going to start over. He was going to create a new people beginning with Moses. You know, it's kind of out with the old and in with the new. There's a store that used to have that name here in Murphy. Out with the old, in with the new. And that's what he was saying in verse 
verse 10, that I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you, Moses. And so Moses, think about what he's doing. Moses is praying on behalf of this terribly sinful people who have turned against God and against Moses. And he's interceding for them. And look at what he prays beginning in verse 11. Notice, he doesn't point to anything about this people. He doesn't try to minimize their sin. He doesn't say that there's any reason that's inherent in this people that God should save them, but only because of who God is, only because of what God desires and what God provides. So first, uh, Moses responds to God's own reputation among the Gentiles, and and you'll see there, uh, he says in verse 12, why should the Egyptians say, and then he goes on, to talk about the Egyptians. And, and, and he's asking God to save this people, not for their sake, but for the sake of God's reputation. Because Moses cares about God's reputation. And he longs for God's name to be upheld and to be shown forth for who he truly is, to be exalted among the nations. So that's one reason he gives. But then more significantly, uh, just after that, Moses responds on the basis of God's covenant promises. And he, and he makes his appeal to God out of this covenant relationship that God has with his people. Look at verse uh, 13. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore, notice, promises of God, to whom you swore by your own self, and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. In all of this land that I have promised you, I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. You know, these promises, they began with Abraham. So you can go back to to Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 4, and you can see Abraham's promises there. And then they're given again and again and again in Scripture, these promises. Covenant promises of the Lord. Uh, Covenant promises that say, this will be yours. You are my people. And this is going to be yours. You know, I remember I had a a professor in seminary. His name was Dr. Johnston. Uh, He was in the Old Testament department. He knew the Old Testament backwards and forwards. Uh, but, But what I especially remember about him was, not only did he love the Lord, but he had such a reliance upon the promises of God. And I remember him regularly quoting from memory all the places where we have these, this covenant promise, the one that I just read. And, and he would take those promises and he would apply them to us and he'd say, you are this offspring. These are your spiritual blessings, that land, that inheritance. It's yours. They're all spiritual blessings that you have in Christ, in the mediator, redemption, justification, adoption, forgiveness, glorification, on and on. You've been chosen. You've been brought into His family and accepted and received and loved and protected and made His. You've been chosen. All flowing out of this covenant and all because of this mediator. And you know, that right there is the basis for this wonderful statement in verse 14. 
and the Lord relented from the disaster that He had spoken of bringing upon His people. Why? Because the mediator showed up. And ultimately, that mediator is not Moses. Because Moses was unable, but Moses points to the true mediator, to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our true mediator, and He's the only one who is able to turn away God's wrath because He took it upon Himself. And something that you, therefore, must make sure is that you are truly in this covenant. I want to tell you about the people of Israel that he was talking about here. Not all of these people were truly in this covenant. Now, outwardly, they were. And we have the same within, within a church, a body, a visible church. Outwardly, uh, we are in that covenant. If we are members of the church, uh, if we've been baptized, and the children who are here as well. But inwardly, the only way to truly be in that covenant is to come by faith and to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, to follow Him. And when you are inwardly in that covenant, these promises are yours. And they can never be taken away. They never will be taken away. And you're able to live with Him day in and day out. And the Lord continues to work inside of you and to shape you into the person that He desires you to be. Meanwhile, giving you the blessings that we are able to have in this life and in the life to come. And so, this ultimately is the the promise that we need to look for, the escape hatch that we need to make sure is ours. Remember uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, who are in this relationship, who have that covenant relationship with the Lord. And so we need to make sure that that is ours. So first of all, flee from sin because of the nature of sin. Secondly, flee from sin because it is serious. As we see here, it does lead to destruction. It leads to death. But then finally, make sure that this is yours, that you're in this covenant relationship, that you're walking with this, with the Lord Jesus Christ, knowing Him uh, and receiving all that is His and now uh, is yours as well. I invite you to please join me in prayer. Father, we thank You uh, even as we recognize the seriousness of sin and, and what it really is and we know from our own hearts how easily we're drawn into it. And we know the battle that can be there if we're battling against it. Uh, yet to know, Lord, that we are not left on our own. To know that we're not in a place in which we're, we're, we're just left to continue forward into destruction, but that You have given us that, that rope, that saving grace that we can hang on to so that we can be pulled out and be shown forgiveness, be brought into Your people and live as those who belong to You. I pray that for each one of us in our lives that You'd help us to see our own sin. You'd help us to struggle with it. Help us not to ignore it. Help us not to minimize it. Uh, But help us 
to see it as it is, to flee from it, and to look to our Savior. Uh, We pray this in His name. Amen.